0: Welcome to Energy360, the podcast from the CSIS Energy Program. I'm your host, Lisa Highland. I'm excited to bring you today's special episode. CSIS's Andrew Schwartz joins us. You may know Andrew from other CSIS podcasts like the Trade Guys, and he is also our Chief Communications Officer. Andrew talks with Sarah Ladislaw about how climate change has risen to be a top priority for global leaders something especially noticeable at the recent meetings in Davos. They explore how energy policy has changed over the last four decades, moving from a more straightforward policy issue to something at the center of economic growth, trade, industrial policy, governance, and foreign policy, and a whole list of things. They explore how the United States is addressing energy and climate challenges, not just the Washington response, but also from the state and local levels and from private sector and civil society. Let's turn it over to Andrew and Sarah now.
1: Sarah, there's a lot going on in the world right now. We've got tensions in the Middle East. We've got trade tensions. We've got the Wuhan virus. Yet when world leaders sat down to meet in Davos this week, basically the top item on all of their lists, most of their lists, was climate change. What did you think about that?
2: It's both surprising uh, for a lot of people, particularly the way that it came across in the World Economic Forum context, right? I mean, they always set the scene for Davos by asking people, like, what's the biggest item on your risk horizon? And eight out of the top 10 Criteria were all environmental impacts, somehow related to mismanagement of climate change, right? And it is surprising. Like it is. And surprising. the other
1: issues were like income inequality.
2: There were a lot of income inequality issues. I mean, you know, nuclear war always like makes it up there because it would be so consequential if it happens. It's right? a big one. Yeah, it's a big one, right? But like you know, by and large, when you look at all this tension, you're talking about geopolitical risk, all these other things. They didn't. They didn't quite rise to the same level although they were, you know they were certainly flagged. I think it reflects what a lot of people understand uh, and increasingly like have been talking about over the last several years, which is, you know, climate change gets to be one of these sticky wicket issues because it's not one thing. It's a whole bunch of different things, right? Dealing with climate change means you have to reduce emissions. Uh, it means you have to sort of change the way your economies are structured von der Leyen, the the president of the EU, made a speech that basically said, listen, you know, we're going all in on a net zero emissions economy because we want to be the most competitive economy in the future. And so we're changing the way we do things. But it also means you have to think about food production and agriculture how your assets or your cities that are located on coastal uh, uh, environments are, you know, susceptible to sea level rise. It just covers so many different things. And then in the weeks leading up to Davos, we had sort of the financial institutions like BlackRock and others sort of talk about, you know, how the investment landscape is going to change. And quite frankly, there's a lot of financial risk out there. And so, I think because people have learned to connect environmental issues with just about every other aspect of you know, human uh, existence and the economy and politics, that you know, understanding that we haven't really dealt with that issue, I think, really sort of raised to a level of strategic significance it hasn't had before. And that's certainly been true of our work as well in the energy program here at CSIS. Uh, where climate change, no matter where you look, is sort of one of the issues that is sort of shaping the way that we have to look at the energy landscape going forward.
1: Has it come into even bigger focus for you these days?
2: Yeah, it has. I mean, I would say, you know, the energy program here at CSIS has existed for 40 years, right? It was yeah. born out of the wake of the Arab oil embargo when, you know, energy went from like this boring topic, which was, you know, how do people produce energy for just normal economic livelihood, you know, from, you know, we used to be back in the day of agriculture into the industrialized sector. But then really, you know, understanding that we had to trade, energy across borders. And that trade in energy led to strategic vulnerabilities was really the sort of heyday of energy becoming a strategic and a geopolitical issue. I would say climate change has done the same thing for energy in a more contemporary context, which is the idea that in order to manage a big global issue, you'll have to do what is fairly unprecedented, which is change the entire energy system, which is 80% reliant on fossil-based fuels today, to a zero to net zero carbon-emitting energy system in just a few decades. There are very few types of challenges that the world has ever faced that has that scale attached to it.
1: Now, while this was high on most global leaders' lists, the Europeans, Pacific Rim nations, and others wasn't necessarily at the top of President Trump's list. Yep. So how are we dealing with that here in the United States? And how is, why isn't it at the top of his list?
2: You know, I think there's two issues related to the, the way that the current administration and certainly President Trump think about climate change. And part of it has to do with a phenomenon in US politics that has been true for quite some time. I'll talk a little bit about that, but I want to say at the outset, I think it's actually not reflective of where the vast majority of Americans are, and certainly the vast majority of companies, corporations, investors, state level policymakers uh, are really on this issue. We've seen huge amounts of movement in terms of what um, state level policymakers or city level planners, very large corporations, very large investment houses, are saying about what they're willing to do to try and transition to a low carbon economy not just because they think that it's good for the world but because they do think that it's good you know for their business i think that the the trump administration in particular doesn't regard that as a, a priority one because they they do reflect a very real sentiment in us politics which is to deal with climate change is to put yourself at a strategic disadvantage this president is all about righting the wrongs of the U.S. putting itself at the st- strategic disadvantage for the good of the global the global what, what good. Is,
1: what is it? How does it put us at a disadvantage? So
2: the the narrative is that you know essentially to to be able to pursue a low carbon future, you have to do things that are costly. Now that was very much true, you know, 30 or 40 years ago when you know renewables and a whole bunch of other technologies that'll be required for that kind of transition were not as competitive. Today, they're much more competitive. It will still be difficult and will take some effort to be able to reduce emissions, one, as quickly as we're supposed to over the next several decades, and two, like once you get to 50 to 60% emissions reduction, once you get outside the electric power sector, all of that stuff becomes a little bit more complicated to do they're really concerned that there is a cost there, right? And that if you're almost the opposite of the perspective you get in the EU, where they think that taking action on climate change earlier rather than later puts you at a strategic advantage, many parts of this administration think that's actually ridiculous. You put yourself at a disadvantage because other countries around the world won't follow you. They won't be able to decarbonize and therefore... The U.S. would be spending money and putting itself at a strategic disadvantage. I do think one of the things that has changed is for those folks that invest in uh, or take part in actually making the electricity supply that we all use or the transportation fuels that we all use or the vehicles that we drive— they have conceded the fact that those technologies and those industries are changing. They might not you know, agree with uh, Greta Thunberg that it's going to all change by tomorrow, but they do agree that we're on a path to a transition, and they'd actually really like to see government policy that helps navigate the path from where we are today to where we are tomorrow. So in many ways, just like uh, our colleagues on trade or on, on sort of broader economic issues, might think the Trump administration— Is hearkening back to an older time, not really thinking about transitions of the future, I think that's part of the criticism about how they fail to sort of regard the challenges related to climate change.
1: So it's not just that President Trump likes to needle Greta Thunberg.
2: There is certainly that uh, as well. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I do think uh, I do think she, you know, she did take the Time magazine cover away from him as he said. So yeah. maybe that really really yeah. bothers him. Yeah. But but I will say even on the Republican side of the equation, I mean, even while all of this is going on, there are members of Congress uh, on the Republican side of the ledger. There are Republican uh, lawmakers you know, within the United States at a, at a state and local level who really want to find a way to have a positive position on these issues. Even folks within the, the Trump administration who focus on innovation, say, in the areas of nuclear power or carbon capture and sequestration or battery storage technology, They really do see that the U.S. should try to be competitive in technologies that, quite frankly, will succeed and be winners in that low-carbon future. And so, I do think that it's a much more nuanced story than the administration uh, and and certainly President Trump gives uh, when he when he faces the world and talks about it.
1: So, what are some of the ways that we're working here at CSIS to try to bring some bipartisanship to the climate discussion?
2: So, a, a few different things. I mean, one thing we're doing in the energy and national security. Program is, you know, we have enjoyed a, a long history of people who you know who pay attention and follow our work based on the intersection of uh, what what used to be the only sort of strategic connection between energy uh, and and broader strategic issues, which was this idea of national security, the idea of having enough energy and and uh, and it fueling sort of American growth and and uh, and national power we're switching the name of the energy program to be the energy security and climate change program because we think it's really important for us to recognize that we see both the the idea that we need to have a robust and affordable and reliable energy system as continued to be important and so that national security element is certainly not gone But it would be completely incomplete for us not to think about climate change in a much more uh, sort of fulsome way because it is one of the defining trends for the entire energy industry and, quite frankly, more broadly for the economy going forward. We see a ton of bipartisan uh, ground to be able to cover on this issue, and, and we certainly hope to do that inside the contours of the energy program. More broadly across the center, I think that uh, when you think about, you know, the issue of climate change, there's a much broader foreign policy agenda where there can be a lot of productive and durable U.S. foreign policy engagement, right? Regardless of how you think about climate change, there will be security impacts. We need to think about our national security posture relative to those things. How do we deal with Uh, wildfires and migration and flooding where we're going to need to provide assistance. How do we think about the governance challenges that come with this issue? Right now, there's a huge amount of discussion about trade and climate change. Will there be border carbon adjustments? We've got a great trade team here who can think about and and lead on some of those issues. Big plug
1: for the trade guys. Big
2: plug for the trade guys. Uh, So... All the way down the line from our food security to our oceans program to our uh, development program to all our foreign policy teams, there's lots and lots that can be done so that the U.S. can have a more forward, more strategic posture when it comes to engaging on issues of climate change, and we hope to do that going forward.
1: Well, so you just brought something up that, that is really interesting. You know, climate change has already been blamed for the really horrible brush fires in Australia withering coral reefs all over the world, rising sea levels, cataclysmic storms. But something else is happening now. It's also starting to be the subject of talk that it could be blamed for the next financial crisis. Mm -hmm. And today, we're talking Thursday of this week, um, the ECB, the European Central Bank, um, put out a report that talks about how um, climate change poses unprecedented challenges um, to the economy. What do you think about that?
2: Yeah, I think that this is something, again, that has been uh, a topic of conversation really brought up by Mark Carney, who was the head of the central bank in the UK. There was a Bloomberg sort of led task force on climate related financial disclosure. All of it is to say that, you know, folks who are looking at the financial uh, sector particularly in the wake of the financial crisis, the f- housing crisis, where the, the whole the whole point of, uh, of these reviews was to take a look at where is there risk that we're not really thinking about in the financial industry, and how do we figure out what that risk is? And so the financial community has spent a lot of, of time over the last several years, including central bankers, trying to say, well, what's the risk of climate change to all of the assets that have value that make up the basis of our global financial system? And so there is continues to be a lot of work to try and do a couple things. One is figure out what that risk might be, figure out who holds that risk, and then ask them what they're going to do about it. And so I think by the ECB and others saying, we think that there is risk. We don't think it's managed appropriately. It's meant to be a catalyst for everybody from you know pension fund owners to asset owners to investors to fund managers to governments and to companies to say, if there's an unmitigated risk here, we've got to think about how to do something about that.
1: Do they currently have the tools to deal with any of this?
2: Sort of. I mean, I think one of the issues is uh, was one coming up with a methodology for thinking about this, right? So there's kind of two kinds of risk. One is a physical asset risk, right? So you have all these risks to the natural environment, and who owns that, right? So if you hold municipal bonds in a particular town or something like that, and and that town continues to flood over and over again, who who's held liable for those things, right? Um, so so who holds the risk? What is the risk to physical infrastructure and, and how do we think about that? The other is transition risk. And so transition risk is what happens if you know we decide we need to decarbonize quite quickly and everything that you have that has a high carbon profile to it becomes worth less could that be like what we saw happen to the coal industry several years ago where all of a sudden a combination of factors including you know the the riskiness of their high high carbon profile and and public policy to deal with that sort of started to to march forward it caused you know the industry to to be bankrupt could that happen what would happen in that case and so i think this idea that any company that owns large scale energy-intensive infrastructure businesses has to be able to say, here's why we don't think that's a risky portfolio going forward, is the other aspect of this here. I think a lot of people interpret this to say, well, everybody who owns anything in a, in a fossil fuel sector is essentially, you know, at risk. Maybe. What we've seen so far is that the investors, what all of this action means is it's prompting investors to have conversations with companies about what's their transition plan. What's their plan from here to there into the future? And that conversation is really important. That's where people get a real true sense of what is the risk? How is the risk being managed? And what do we do going forward? And I think it's one of the most powerful things even above and beyond policy at this point, that's getting people whose dollars actually exist in the energy system to say, geez, we're going to have to think about how durable the current pathway is, particularly if it's not thinking about you know how we approximate these risks.
1: Because of our politics, are we going to fall behind the rest of the world when it comes to thinking about climate change? Are we in danger of that?
2: You know, it goes back to whether you think that the sort of Uh, heterogeneous nature of the United States is a blessing or a curse, right? I mean, we have some states that are moving forward very quickly. They're leaders in the world in thinking about these issues, California certainly being one of them. Um, And then we have a lot of parts of the country that don't think about these issues very much at all and don't do a lot. And that is reflected in our national politics. I do think that to the extent that planning and being deliberate and thinking about how to be competitive, as well as how do you protect your local communities? How do we make sure that we're taking care of people and communities that will be on the front lines of climate change, if you think that planning is useful for those things and by all indications, we think, you know, that that is probably the case, then yeah, the US could fall behind the thing that's you know that sort of goes against what i just said is we're also extremely innovative we do spend a lot of money on these different you know technologies and solutions and so the people around the world still do continue to look to the united states for some kinds of solutions but you know even on something sort of a, a small piece of this puzzle but but an important one which is like innovation in energy technologies i mean you look to asia and asia is uh, particularly china largest market in the world for most renewable energy technologies, certainly made it a strategic priority to be able to innovate in all of those areas, and quite frankly, is doing a very good job in bringing down the cost of some of the technologies that are likely to be the most competitive in the world going forward. The U.S. has to ask itself some real serious questions about whether we want to be real players in that game and what that's going to mean for us in terms of you know how we try to, to, try to compete.
1: But do our tribal politics around this issue prevent us from really getting anything done and really leading in the world on this issue?
2: Yeah, I do think the, as is true of many different political issues and policy issues in the United States, our severe sort of polarization on this issue makes it more difficult uh, than it needs to be to find a pathway forward. For example, some of the things that you could do to reduce emissions uh, in the United States are actually not terribly controversial. Yes, they probably put certain industries at a disadvantage, but if we had been doing you know, more of this type of activity for the last two decades, the transition would have been even easier than it is now. the The difficulty now is... You have the politics of this issue, which on the left is we have waited too long. We need to transition very quickly, and transitioning very quickly means doing some very uh, not, I don't want to say dramatic, but much more uh, intrusive things into the economy, like prematurely retiring capital that hasn't lived to its natural, you know, life, like investing huge amounts of money in new infrastructure, um, like policies that have more to do with banning certain types of energy infrastructure, or energy consumption than. What's on the other side, which is, well, we shouldn't do anything about this because we're not going to meet that target and therefore trying doesn't make any sense. Well, there's a huge amount of space in the middle of those two options, which is actually there's a whole bunch of new energy technologies, new policies, things that just make sense to do that we should be doing. Why don't we try and pursue some of those and see how far we get?
1: So it's kind of an exciting time when you think about the space in between.
2: It's hugely exciting. I mean, I do think one of the things that's frustrating for me, and, you know, Andrew, as you know, like, because you've seen me do this, is I give talks about these issues. And people find it so demoralizing and depressing right. that we're not, you know, making good on uh, on trying to tackle this challenge. And what I find interesting is, actually, there's so much hope in it. There's so much uh, reinvention of the way that we have industry structured today. there's new uh, industries to be you know invented. there's a lot of opportunity for people in this new environment and you know most people say, well then that means the end of the fossil industry. I don't know that that's true. I feel like if we had a much more inclusive way of going about talking about these solutions, we could feel very hopeful about the potential that it gives us particularly for the United States, thinking about how we work with countries around the world, it gives us a shared enterprise, right? A shared thing that we should be, you know, going after as a global objective. And I really do feel like we've got a lot of the component pieces of what we need to tackle the challenge.
1: Well, I get excited just, and we talk about this all the time, uh, when we're not doing podcasts, (laughs) you and me, is about plastic in the ocean. And like, look at how we're starting to really lead on that. You know, that's become an issue where, where we have paper straws. We're really being, you know, more mindful about how we consume plastic in this country and how we deal with plastic. All of a sudden, China is now talking about how they're going to deal with plastic. So there are things that we are doing and there are things we are doing to mitigate our carbon footprint.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the things that's really important is understanding that In order to tackle these large global challenges, you need a few different things. And one is technology. Well, we've got more technological change going on today than we've seen in more than a century, right? I mean, it's a huge, wide open playing field of new technologies and and new ways of creating new technology that we haven't seen in a very long time. So really positive on that side. What you were saying about, you know, we noticed a global imperative, China has this global imperative that they've noticed, and we're starting to think about ways to work together, that's a big kind of global awakening. I mean, we haven't talked about it yet, but, you know, millions and millions of kids— Protesting in the streets about a future that they want to see that is more sustainable. I always think back to you know the late Dr. Brzezinski, who said the new uh, environment in which people can communicate with each other much more readily will lead to a mass global awakening of democracy. Right. He is not wrong. That is what is happening, and we're seeing people you know with their voices, with their feet in the streets,
1: particularly young people.
2: Yeah, and I don't know that that's going to lead to some you know giant socialist revolution. I'm not going that far, but it is a way of people realizing that, you know, there is sort of an awakening of a, of a voice in the youth about the shaping of their future that I think has really changed the way that people uh, in positions of power think about their responsibilities going forward. And the last thing I'll say is the geopolitical landscape is changing. You know, I would say the biggest change in Washington, D.C., you know, save for the the Trump administration, which a change in administration always brings a lot of change in in Washington, over the last, you know, uh, uh, three or four years has been our appreciation of the kind of global competition that we're in with other countries, right? This competitive drive to really understand what is the future of the U.S. place in the world well, listen, climate change is a global problem. It requires global solutions. There's a great foundation there for being able to sort of communicate with each other about how do we protect all the things that we've always cared about, like energy security, like making sure that we've got, you know, enough of those energy uh, resources out there, all the stuff we've always sort of cared about. But how do we do it in a new way where we can really, you know, seriously reduce emissions? And I think we've got all the things that we need to be able to pursue that.
1: Sarah, as always, it's great talking with you, and I know we're going to keep talking about these issues in the days and weeks and months to come.
0: That's great. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks again to Andrew Schwartz for hosting this episode of Energy 360. Check out the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at CSIS.org for more information about our new name and for information about new initiatives launching soon. You can find more episodes of Energy 360 at Apple Podcasts, at Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, follow us on Twitter at CSIS Energy. Thanks for listening.